Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. A.W. Tozer said this, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would notice the difference. (laughs) If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. That bothers me. (laughs) Now you can quibble a bit with the numbers and there's probably a little hyperbole in there, but I think he's got a point. The modern church is incredibly good at doing things in our own strength. See, that's not true. We're rubbish at doing things in our own strength. (laughs) If we really were good at doing things in our own strength, the world would look a lot different. We're not. But I tell you what we're worse at? Admitting it. (laughs) If the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from the church, 95% of what we do would go on and nobody would notice the difference. For many Christians in the modern world, we have got used to the idea of doing what we are capable of and setting our expectations at the level of our experience. We have essentially uh, settled for what we are comfortable with and capable of and thought that's the benchmark of Christianity so that we feel good about what we can achieve. I think there is so much more that the Holy Spirit wants to do through his church if only we were open to him. The scary thing is, and to be clear, I am holding my hand up here. I know that if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from my life, a lot of my life would go on the same and I probably wouldn't notice the difference. And my challenge to us today is that there is so much more that the Holy Spirit wants to do. In us as individuals, in us as a church, this should not be the case. I grew up in a very, very formal church. Uh, I, I actually really enjoy formal <laughs> churches and liturgies. And this, so this is not a criticism of any particular church. But my experience of church growing up was that I wasn't around people my age. Everyone was basically 80 plus. <laughs> and I never saw Christianity that seemed to make a difference to people's lives. It was quite dry. It was quite dull. And essentially what I thought Christianity was, was a bunch of things you had to believe up here, but didn't actually make a lot of difference. Age 12, I went to these confirmation classes. I started reading the Bible for the first time, and I read the book of Acts, and it was confusing. (laughs) And I remember going to my pastor and saying to him, "Um, I'm a bit puzzled, because I'm reading this book, and it's so exciting. Like God seems to do stuff left, right, and center, healing people, speaking to people, doing amazing things, people coming to faith in their thousands. Why is this book so exciting and this church so not. <laughs> and upon reflection, I probably could have phrased it a little bit kinder, but I was a 12-year-old struggling with the dissonance between what I was reading in the Bible and what I was experiencing or not experiencing in church. And you know what my vicar said? He said, don't worry. The Holy Spirit hasn't done those things for 2,000 years. <laughs> and I didn't know any better. I believed him. <laughs> and it crushed me. Because for the first time in my life, I had seen a version of Christianity that seemed exciting, that seemed compelling. It was like a carrot was dangled in front of me and then snatched away. Don't worry, he said. And what he thought I was worried about was the idea that, oh, the Holy Spirit might want to do some radical things today. What I was actually worried about was that the Holy Spirit did want to do those things and I was missing out on them. 
So he was trying to lower my expectations, and I believed him, and I lowered my own expectations. It wasn't until I got to university that I was in a church where, for the first time, I was around people my age who seemed to live like these things they believed made a difference to their life. I couldn't get my head around that. They were preaching on the book of Acts, and I was like, why would you preach about things that hadn't happened for 2,000 years? But they talked as if they did. I got to encounter the Spirit for myself. I realized that Christianity is about a relationship. Maybe you're all like, yeah, duh, like everyone knows that, but I didn't know that. And that was a radical experience for me, and my life has not been the same since. Which is not, of course, to say that my life is like the book of Acts on a day-to-day basis. I don't get stoned most days, by which I mean, like, well, I don't get stoned in any any sense, to be clear, most days. But, (laughs) But I tell you this, my life is not on a high all the time. It's not like the book... (laughs) It's not... See, the first joke was intended. That one wasn't... It's not like my, my life resembles the book of Acts all the time. Absolutely not. It's not, like, it's not like I'm constantly experiencing the leading of the Holy Spirit, that miracles happen everywhere around, but something has changed in that I'm no longer satisfied with what I used to be satisfied with. I've now got this deep longing, there's got to be more, that the Holy Spirit wants to do in my life, in my church, in the world around me. I'm not satisfied by what the world around me looks like. I want to be open to the Spirit. I want him to do things in me and through me that flow out to the rest of the world so that if the Spirit were withdrawn, which he won't be, by the way, then people would notice the difference. I want to basically say to Toza, I'm overturning your quote, (laughs) and I want you to join me in that. So what I want to do tonight is just look at one verse in the book of Acts, Acts 9.31, and I'll use this as a Leaping off point for some other things as well. Acts 9.31. And if you're not familiar with the story of Acts, essentially it's the story of the early church. And this is like a few years in to the beginning of the church. And so much has gone on in just a short, short space of time. Christianity just exploded. People were turning to, to faith in Christ in their thousands. People were being healed left, right and centre. Amazing things happening. Churches being planted all over the place. So much so that the Jewish authorities, some of them in particular, heard about this, were not happy with it and decided that they were going to quash it. One man in particular, a guy called Saul or Paul, made it his life mission to basically kill or imprison Christians and get rid of them. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 9 of Acts. But then completely out of the blue, whilst he is trying to round up and imprison Christians, Saul, Paul himself, has an encounter with the Spirit that changes his whole life. And he goes from being one of the most zealous persecutors of the church to being one of the most zealous evangelists for Jesus. So much so that the people who he used to work for then hate him and want to kill him. And so Acts 9, it's a brilliant chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters. It's slightly farcical with like Paul being the enemy and then suddenly people are out to kill him. It's a crazy chapter. Read it. God's deliverance of Paul is absolutely amazing. But it is chaos. And the book of Acts is a chaotic book. In many ways, I don't want to get back to the Acts days because basically everyone seemed to want to kill a lot of people. People didn't know what they were doing. It was a scary, pressurized time. There was a lot of distrust. The early church were hearing that Saul, Paul, had become one of them, but they weren't sure. Like, do we welcome this guy into our church or is this a trick? Is he out to kind of get into the church, expose us, imprison us, kill us? There was fear. There was distrust. There was this sense of danger. And all those things make me think, how on earth was the church going to survive? The church didn't only survive, it thrived. In that context of pressure and danger and chaos, actually it became a context in which the church thrived. 
It grew. It multiplied rapidly. I love the fact that the book of Acts starts out by counting numbers. It's like X number of people became a Christian here. X number of people became a Christian here. And then it just stops counting. You ever notice that? It's because they just lost count, I think. Because the church grew and grew and grew. And this is how it grew. Acts 9.31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit, it multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit, the church multiplied. I want us to consider that. How much does that sum up our experience of the church? Fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. You see, I think that if we want to experience something of the growth and life that the church in Acts experienced, we need to have the same posture and power that that church had. And to be clear, this is not a formula like Take two parts of the fear of the Lord and one part of the comfort of the Spirit guarantees success. Like, I'm not after a success model. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that we are unlikely to see the sort of fruit that the early church saw unless we are willing to have the same posture of humility, of deep dependence on the Spirit, of going out of our way to follow him even when it is terrifying, even when it goes in the face of all that we think to be reasonable. I feel like we are not going to get to overturn that Tozer quote and change the direction of the the church for the good of this nation unless we also can grow and walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. So I just want to unpack those two halves of that phrase tonight and then I'd love to pray for us. And let's start with the first half. Walking in the fear of the Lord. When was the last time you used or heard the phrase, the fear of the Lord? It's not a phrase we talk about a lot, but it's actually all through the Bible, time and again, not just the Old Testament, New Testament as well. It's a core description of what it looks like to live a life devoted to God. But I think for many of us, when we hear the phrase, the fear of the Lord, we tend to have one of two reactions. For some people who maybe have an idea of God that he is an angry, judgmental God, the idea of the fear of the Lord, it makes sense. Because that kind of God, you do fear, right? So we hear the idea of the fear of the Lord, and it sort of it sort of solidifies this view of God that we have that he's angry and we should be afraid of him and we should keep him at a distance. For another camp who primarily think of God as being a God of love, actually the word fear just jars a little bit. I mean, surely if God is a God of love and he loves us, shouldn't we love him? Like what role does fear have to have in our relationship with God? And so whichever camp you fall into, it's very easy to misunderstand the phrase, the fear of the Lord. And I think the reason is twofold. One, we misunderstand what fear is in this context. And two, we think the fear and love are opposites. They're not actually opposites. Psalm 145 says this. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. The Lord is near to all who call on him. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. Fearing God and loving God are not two opposite ideas. They are actually one and the same. They're two sides of the same coin. Because the kind of fear that we're talking about when we talk about the fear of the Lord is not abject terror. It's more like awe. It's worship. It's love. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience where you're in a place like out in nature, somewhere just vast and open. And and it's just so awe-inspiring that you feel this kind of almost like trembling terror at the enormity and power of nature but simultaneously you also feel amazing joy and like I don't want to be anywhere else have you ever had that like imagine you are in a tiny little boat in a vast ocean 
a swirling space, just so aware that I cannot control this thing. This could destroy me in an instant. It is vast and way outside of my capacity to rule over it. And yet it's just such a beautiful privilege to be here. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. That's the fear of the Lord. It's an awareness of the hugeness of God, about his incomparable and uncontrollable nature. The fact that he is so much greater than we are. In a way that causes us to tremble. And yet, rather than thinking, I've got to get away, it makes us think, I never want to leave. It's a weird paradox, but that is the fear of the Lord. It is love. It is awe. It is worship. I often think of the fear of the Lord as being something like this. Like, there are two ways of responding to something that is awesome. One is to fall backwards. One is to fall forwards. Imagine those pictures of people when they encounter something scary and they fall backwards in a kind of like, get away from me sort of posture, like trying just desperately to keep this thing at arm's length. That, I think, is an unhealthy fear, falling backwards. That's what we often think of when we hear the fear of the Lord. The other is to fall forwards in worship and adoration. The posture is completely different. The arms are still outstretched, but in order to receive, not in order to push away. The fear of the Lord is not about falling backwards, trying to get away from him, but falling forwards, recognizing his greatness and saying, I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to be here in your presence. There is something I think deeply healthy about this kind of falling forwards fear of the Lord. In 2018, a couple of uh, magazines, and um, particularly on the area of psychology, wrote about the benefits, the psychological benefits of awe. Emotion magazine and the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology reported on a series of studies that sought to examine the effects of awe and wonder on participants. They found that inducing awe, I don't know how they induced awe, by the way, (laughs) it's a bit of a strange thing, but there you go, somehow they induced awe in participants, um, and these were some of the results. An increase in happiness, an increase in satisfaction with life, reduction of symptoms of stress and PTSD, better immune health and reduced symptoms of heart disease and diabetes, all of which is pretty impressive. But here, I think, is the most important thing. They discovered this. When individuals encounter an entity that is vast and challenges their worldview, they feel awe, which leads to self-diminishment and subsequently humility. Inducing awe led participants to present a more balanced view of their strengths and weaknesses to others and acknowledge to a greater degree the, combination, uh, the contribution of outside forces in their own personal accomplishments. Think about that for a moment. What happens when we lose a sense of awe and the grandeur of God? I think our view of God diminishes, our view of ourself grows, we no longer recognize his involvement in our lives, and we no longer depend on him. As a result, we strive to work in our own strength and we get to where Tozer wrote about us. So what's the opposite? It is to keep a huge view of God when we are struck in awe and wonder and worship by how vast, how powerful, how mighty God is, we diminish. Not in a negative way, like we become less, we actually become more the people we were intended to be because we recognise our deep dependency on him and only then do we open our hands, not to keep him away, but to welcome his presence? Then we are able to move powerfully and effectively in the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizing that we don't have what it takes by ourselves. We are open to the contribution of outside forces, as it were. That's what we need to do. We need to 
cultivate an attitude, a posture of awe, of worship, of the fear of the Lord. I love the fact that Acts 9 says that they walked in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not the kind of fear that just freezes you to the, stop, to the spot, like I'm not moving anywhere. Rather, it's a fear that you can move in. It involves motion. I always imagine this, like everywhere I walk throughout my day, am I walking in the fear of the Lord? Am I carrying with myself a posture, an awareness of his presence? When I go into a supermarket, to my workplace, to my daughter's school, in my community, am I going there in the fear of the Lord, aware that he is looking over me and I am there as his representative in the moment? Fear of the Lord is not just something you experience here at a worship time. It's a posture in which we are meant to walk all the days of our lives. I think this is how Jesus himself lived. Isaiah 11 prophesied about Jesus and said this, The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. See, what we see in Jesus is that same combination that we see in the book of Acts. Jesus feared the Lord. Which is not to say that he was terrified of God, but he absolutely wasn't. And he had no reason to be terrified of God. He delighted in the fear of the Lord. That is, he was conscious everywhere he went that he was doing the work of the Father, bringing him glory. Everywhere Jesus walked, he was walking saying, God, what do you want me to do? I'm aware that your plan for my life is the one I want to live by. Keep me from other plans. I want to be in your way. That's the fear of the Lord. If it was good enough for Jesus, good enough for the early church, I think it's good enough for us. We need to cultivate the fear of the Lord. And if we had time, we could look at a whole load of things that the Bible says about this. It's worth just reading about the fear of the Lord. Find every reference. There is so much about it. The beginning of wisdom. You want to know how to live? Begins with the fear of the Lord. Deals with the fear of man. When you're aware of the greatness of God, other things that would normally terrify us don't terrify us so much. The fear of the Lord leads us in the way of holiness. You know, when we get a glimpse of the glory of God, actually that does protect us from seeking glory from other places. When we get a sense of the hugeness of God, his power, his might, his holiness, that does actually cause us to think, I want to live in a way that pleases this God. Not out of terror, not out of fear of judgment, but out of a delight and a desire to please him. I was struck yesterday preaching on Exodus, um, doing a whole day on, uh, or half day on School of Theology. There's this funny little moment in Exodus chapter 20 where Moses is given these 10 commandments and presents them to the people. And they say, we'll do everything, which if you read Exodus at that point, you're like, you're not going to do anything. Like, you're going to mess this up before the chapter's out, and sure enough. But like, these people say, yes, we'll follow you, God. And what happens? God comes in power. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's clouds, there's fire. Like It's exciting but terrifying. And this is what the people say. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. Then they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we'll die. Which you can kind of understand. If suddenly there were like thunder, lightning, smoke, fire, like I would be terrified. But what do they do? They literally, they fall back. They say, keep us at a distance. You can talk to God. You tell him, tell us what he said, but I don't want him to come near me. It's a fear that leads to actually distancing from God rather than intimacy. And Moses says, no, 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 don't be afraid. 
God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. That doesn't make sense. (laughs) Don't be afraid. God is giving you the fear of the Lord. Like, which is it? Be afraid or not afraid? But I think what he's trying to say is, don't be afraid in the kind of fear that causes you to fall back and distance yourself. God is actually giving you a taste of his greatness so that you fall forward in worship. And from that posture of worship and humility, you will want to live a life that pleases him. It's the fear of the Lord that empowers us to live a life of holiness. I remember when I was um, at secondary school, my, uh, as, as I said, my experience of church was, was confused at this point. <laughs> I had this sense that I was meant to go to church, meant to follow God. I didn't really know what that looked like. I didn't really understand that it was a relationship. Um, and yet, just something kept drawing me back to Christian spaces. I was at secondary school and I was part of the Christian Union, which sounds more grand than it was. It was just basically six guys. I went to an all-boys school and we met every now and then and talked about the Bible and none of us really knew what it was about. It was a bit strange. But I do remember one particular day, I just, I felt really heavy in the morning, just emotionally heavy. And I, I knew that there was stuff in my life that if there was a God, he, he wouldn't be happy with. And I felt guilty about it. And I didn't know why, but I just thought I need to talk to someone about this. And I couldn't talk to my vicar about it because he was just so distant and like, we had nothing in common. He was like 20 times my age or whatever. Like, and I just, I don't know, but I just felt like, well, I'm going to meet these guys. Maybe I'll just talk about it and sort of confess to them. And I now know that that was the prompting of the spirit. At the time, I just didn't know what it was. But we went and we met up and it was this lunchtime. I sat there with the six guys and I was nervous and I was like, oh, should I, should I talk about this? I don't know. And just before we sort of started our discussion, one of the other guys said, look, I feel a bit awkward about this, but I've been feeling really heavy all morning and there's some stuff in my life that I just feel like I need to confess. Is it right if I confess that to you? And I was like, oh my word, that's exactly how I was feeling. And so I said, that's really weird. I was feeling exactly the same. And another guy was like, you know what, this morning I was feeling exactly the same and I thought I needed to confess to you today. And we went round and we were all like, this is peculiar. (laughs) And so we took it in turns at just confessing stuff that was in our life and asking for prayer and praying for one another and just, just releasing the forgiveness of God over one another. And I have no idea what was going on. I don't, I don't know if I was a Christian at that moment, but there was something going on that I remember it being just a reverent moment that now I understand was the fear of the Lord. And it actually sparked something in us that even though it took a long time to really work out in my life, it changed something about our conversations. We decided we need to help each other. We started to meet every single day to talk and pray, and it lasted for months, sometimes before school, sometimes at lunchtimes, and we would just confess and talk and keep one another accountable and pray, and people would be a bit like, what are these people doing? Why aren't they playing football? And they would come in and go, what are you doing? And we're like, we're just sort of talking and praying, and they would talk to us about God, and we would answer their questions about God, which was barking mad, because I had tons of questions about, I still have tons of questions about God, but it was like a mini revival in a weird kind of way, and for months, it was one of the most intense experiences of my life, I just felt like I've got to get this stuff out. It was the fear of the Lord. And of course that ebbs and flows and I haven't been in that intense situation. Well, thankfully it was really intense. But there was just something about that experience where I became so aware of the greatness of God and so aware of my need for his forgiveness that it just drove me to my knees. And he did it with a group of us, not just one. It was such a precious time. 
I don't want to live with that level of intensity all the time, but that level of awareness, I feel like that's been lacking from my life at times. I think that's part of the fear of the Lord. That God wants us to be so blown away by his enormity and so aware of our frailty and need that we just keep coming to him. That we open our books before him and we say, this is my life. Help me to be more like you. That we get a taste of his greatness in order to lead us in the way of holiness. So my question to you is this. How aware of you of the fear of the Lord? What role does the fear of the Lord play in your life? Are there things that God wants to do in you tonight? Decisions that he wants you to make tonight to put him first? Maybe for some people, growing in the fear of the Lord is just about awareness. Maybe you've never thought that the way you walk, as it were, matters to him. Maybe for you, fear of the Lord is about a little worship time on a Sunday, and that's great, but God's not really interested in the rest of your life. Actually, perhaps what God is prompting you about tonight is walking out of this door and into the rest of your week with a conscious decision. I am going to walk everywhere with this posture of humility, asking God, how do you want me to walk into my place of study, my workplace, my community, wherever it is this week? Maybe it's just awareness of his presence that he wants to put into you today. Maybe for some of us, it's It's relationship. I don't know where you're at. I don't know everyone in this room. It may be that you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you have massive questions about God and maybe this talk is giving you more questions and it's not helping the least. I don't know. But it may be that actually you are hungering for something, for relationship. And perhaps the next step for you tonight is to talk to someone who has invited you, a friend you know, come and speak to me, say, tell me more. What is this relationship like? And how can I know this God and the fruitful life he has for me? Maybe for some of you, you would recognize that you have called yourself a Christian for many years, but actually your view of God is more like the falling back, keep him at a distance sort of view. And perhaps tonight, God wants to fill you with a fresh experience of his love that blows you away and keeps you in a sense of awe. Maybe for some of you, it is actually about holiness. And even as I shared that story, maybe there was just a churning in the pit of your stomach and you thought, man, yeah, I've got stuff that I need to confess. And we could do that tonight. And to be clear, I don't want anyone to confess out of a feeling of duty or judgment or anything like that. That's not the way God works. Actually, Romans 2 says it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's the awe at realizing this God is so holy and yet he doesn't crush me, he loves me. (laughs) That's what leads us to repentance. And I'm not saying that I am perfect. I am absolutely not perfect. (laughs) But the grace of God, as Titus says, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's experiencing the unmerited favor and love of God at work in our lives that causes us to regularly want to and then to say no to ungodliness and to choose to walk in the way of holiness. Perhaps there are some people tonight who just need to be reminded of his deep forgiveness for you, that you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and his grace is at work in your life. We'll have an opportunity to pray if you would like. Maybe for some of you it's just about courage. Maybe some of you know that God has called you into things that actually seem scary. It terrifies you. And maybe what God wants to do tonight is replace your fear of circumstances with the fear of him. That is not actually a fear. It's a joy. It's a delight. It's an empowering. Because here's the thing. God does not call us to things for which he does not also equip us. And that's where the second half of this phrase comes in. 
And I promise you I won't take as long over the second half. (laughs) The people walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't call us to things for which he does not also equip us. And I think the comfort of the Holy Spirit is the answer to the fear of the Lord in one sense. But it's a bit of a weird phrase, the comfort of the Spirit. Because when I think of the word comfort, I think of like rest, relaxation, that sort of thing. Um, we had a re- I really enjoyed last night. Uh, it was great. We'd been out, we'd had a walk, it was lovely. But then you get back to the house, shut the door, kind of batten down the hatches. It's warm, good food, good wine. Okay, conversation. Uh, but like, that's comforting. It's relaxing. It's enjoyable. That's what I think when I hear comfort. That's not the comfort of the spirit. (laughs) The spirit isn't like, just chill out, have a nice life, relax, don't worry about things. Because the comfort of the spirit, actually the word means courage. The courage or comfort of the spirit is not where the spirit says, don't worry, it'll all be okay, chill out. The comfort of the spirit is the kind of comfort that says, don't worry, it'll all be okay, God's on your side, let's get to work. (laughs) The comfort of the spirit is the courage that we need to live out the fear of the Lord. Remember what Isaiah said of Jesus. He was filled with the Spirit and he delighted in the fear of the Lord. And then what does it say later in Isaiah 61? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. What? To relax? To have a comfortable life? No, to do things. The comfort, the courage of the Spirit empowers us to do things. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Bind up the brokenhearted. Proclaim freedom for captives. Release darkness for prisoners. Everything Jesus did in his life was born out of the fear of the Lord, a deep desire to walk in his way, but it was empowered by the comfort and courage of the Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comforts us, it's so that we can live out the fear of the Lord, so that we can make a difference in this world. There's a great illustration uh, in the the bio-tapestry, that's how up-to-date my cultural references are. There you go. Um, this uh, 70 meter long depiction of uh, well, the Norman Conquest and the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Um, and the tapestry depicts various different battles. And um, there's one bit in particular up here. I mean, my Latin is awful, so I'm relying on someone else here. But uh, it depicts a particular bit of the battle. And as I understand it, the Latin says this, Bishop Odo comforts his troops. <laughs> Look at how he's comforting the troops (laughs) with a massive club. (laughs) Bishop Odo doesn't stand at the side and shout out, you're going to be okay, you can do it, go troops. (laughs) How does he comfort his troops? By getting into battle with them. Because the idea of comforting has to do with bringing courage, strengthening. That's what the word used to mean. How does the Holy Spirit encourage us, comfort us? Not by going... You go for it. (laughs) Here's a nice, encouraging Christian cliche that I read on Instagram that I'll just send you away. Like, that's not how the Spirit comforts us. He comforts us by getting into battle with us, riding alongside us, giving us courage and strength to walk out the fear of the Lord. If God is calling us to live lives surrendered to him, committed to holiness, taking big risks, sharing the gospel, bringing healing and life to this world. We're not going to do that in our own strength. We need the comfort and courage of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's only when we get out of our comfort zone that we get into the zone where he is able to comfort us, which is to give us strength for all he wants us to do. So the early church walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit and they multiplied. And that's, that's my prayer for me 
And that's my prayer for you. And that's my prayer for this community. It's my prayer for the church as a whole. That we would know how to walk in the fear of the Lord and we would experience the comfort and courage of the Holy Spirit. I think God has got far greater things planned for this church than we can ever achieve in our own strength. But we're not going to achieve any of those things all the while we think we can do it without him. So my encouragement to us is this. Where are you tonight? What do you need to do tonight? What is God asking of you tonight? I have scattered out a whole load of thoughts in a relatively incoherent way tonight. But there may be just one particular thing that you're like, ah, I have never thought of that. Or I have thought about that. And every time I've thought about it, I pushed it aside. What is the Holy Spirit particularly prompting you in tonight? Is it about awareness of his presence? Is it about confession, repentance, and committing to the way of holiness? Is it about pursuing his wisdom? Is it about taking those steps that you know he's nudging you about, but you're terrified about? What is it tonight that God wants to do? He does not call us to do things for which he does not also equip us. And the Holy Spirit is here, ready to give us courage, to give us his comfort. If only we will hold out our hands and say, Lord, I need you. Would you fill me afresh? So here's what I love us to do. I'd love us to just have a moment to fix our eyes on Jesus, to worship. In fact, maybe the band would like to come back and get ready for that. I'm going to pray for us in a moment, but first I just want to get it clear. This is about fixing our eyes on Jesus, reminding ourselves of his goodness, his greatness. And so we're going to worship. And as we worship, you may just want to listen to any prompts he wants to drop into your heart. You may already know, I know that God is asking me to do this tonight and it might terrify you. In which case, just fix your eyes on him. Allow your fear and love of him to displace those other fears. And I'll come back and I'll pray and we'll see what what God wants to do after that. But, But first, let's just worship. Let's fix our eyes on him. Remind ourselves of his greatness. Remind ourselves of what he has done for us. And allow the Holy Spirit to rest upon us.